Welcome to Jack the Ripper, Part 2, Finding the Killer, at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Hi everybody, welcome back. I'd like to thank many of you for the great reviews you've been sending us on Apple iTunes Podcast app and Stitcher, and let you know we'll be sharing them at the end of this episode. The hunt for the real Jack the Ripper has been one of the most interesting research efforts we have ever been involved in. And as most of you know, we've been involved in quite a few. There continues to be research out there that uncovers new information, and there's no shortage of documentaries and books claiming to know the true identity of Jack the Ripper. It's rather scary to know just how many serious nutcases and killers were on hand in London in 1888. But I'm sure they've got the situation well in hand today. Since that time, the identity of the Whitechapel killer or killers has been hotly debated. An entire genre of ripperology has been created, and over 100 Jack the Ripper suspects have been named, with new ones popping up every few years or so as new theories are brought forward. Though many theories have been advanced, experts find none widely persuasive, and some can hardly be taken seriously at all. You can look at these experts two ways. One, that any new theory is going to get looked at very closely, and two, that most of them have their own theories. And that's good. Metropolitan Police Service files show that their investigation into the serial killings encompassed 11 separate murders between 1888 and 1891, known in the police docket as the Whitechapel murders. Five of these, the murders of Marianne Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly are generally agreed to be the work of a single killer known as Jack the Ripper. They occurred between August and November of 1888 within a few streets of each other and are collectively called the Canonical Five. A growing number of people from serious researchers to hard-working armchair detectives like us think that the Canonical Five were not all committed by the same killer. The six other murders, those of Emma Elizabeth Smith, Martha Tabram, Rose Milet, Alice McKenzie, Francis Coles, and an unidentified woman, have been linked with Jack the Ripper, or not, to varying degrees. There were also knife attacks in the Whitechapel area in the spring of 88 that preceded the Ripper-style murders, stabbings that did not result in fatalities, and there were attacks in 1892 of the same nature. After that, things around Whitechapel got back to the normal pace of murder and mayhem in paradise. The really bad guys left for other areas, or were admitted to asylums, probably to end up on medical school tables. The final irony for them. In the case of the Ripper-style murders, the swiftness of the attacks and the manner of the mutilations performed on some of the bodies, which included disembowelment and removal of organs, including two uteruses, a kidney, and a heart, led to speculation that the murderer had the skills of a physician, a definite hatred of women, and a twisted desire to collect trophies. Think about it. He left the crime scene many times carrying bloody body parts. We have to ask, why? And what did he do with them? And think about this. Accurately targeting and removing a uterus or a kidney while using a six-inch knife with a sharp blade, within minutes, in the open, outside a building, on a street, or in a backyard, and in full darkness, is not a skill known to many. Yet this factor gets overlooked by many researchers and investigators 
who have placed everybody from painters to poisoners on their list. One of the surgeons doing an autopsy on Kate Eddowes claimed that the manner in which her killer removed her left kidney from the front, which surgeons know is much more difficult than removing it from the side, and did so in total darkness, within minutes, and with fear of being discovered in the open, was a sure sign that the killer had anatomical knowledge and learned skills. Anyway, here's the paradox. Anyone who would kill and butcher a living human being like that was either a very hardened criminal being paid to kill to create terror and unrest, or whose intent it was to butcher for fresh body parts he could sell for a profit. A psychopath who was killing and butchering in a blind or sexually motivated rage, or a killer drug addict psycho with a hatred for the womb. Now it's time for a little history. There was no shortage of men with training in dissection in Victorian England, as thousands of young men were seeking medical training in a growing number of medical schools. If ever there was a great time of learning and discovery for medical science, it was 1850 through 1900 in England and France, and it was done with the help of relaxed laws that made it possible for those medical schools and physicians to acquire hundreds, if not thousands, of cadavers and body parts. It was the pride of a good physician back in the 19th century to line his office walls with body parts immersed in formaldehyde jars so the visitor to his office could see that the doctor was no stranger to dissection. No, I'm not exaggerating. That's the way it was. One of the suspects we will be discussing did exactly this. So where did the parts, mostly uteruses, in his office jars come from? He either harvested them or bought them. Of course, there were killers who would kill anyone for money and sell the body or organs to a doctor, like the heart, for 10 pounds, as was done. The dynamic duo of Burke and Hart gained fame by killing a few hundred people in 1827-28 and selling the bodies or parts to eager doctors, spawning a core of imitators called Burkers in their wake. When the two got caught, hair ratted on Burke and was set free. The judge declared that Burke should die by hanging and be publicly dissected as a deterrent to future Burkers. Well, all that happened, but it didn't slow the Burkers down. They worked the med schools and the doctors like snack vendors at a baseball game or a cricket game for you Londoners, finding out quickly that they could make much more with parts than entire bodies. There was no shortage of doctors who called themselves resurrectionists willing and eager to rob graves for the purpose of bettering the human race with new cures and patents, and in the case of the robbers, selling the freshly buried bodies to medical schools or private physicians who had run out of graveyards to plunder. For there was a huge demand, and they paid well. The study of the human body and the need for fresh body parts was in full gear in Victorian England, and laws governing how this was done were very sketchy and French medical schools were apparently enjoying having no laws against procuring fresh corpses, giving their medical students all the bodies and parts they needed, which left England's medical colleges desperate to compete if they were going to grow and attract new students. There was so much illegal trade in corpses going on by 1832, with moonlight fights between doctors, students, and grave robbers breaking out around freshly dug graves that Britain passed a law called the Anatomy Act of 1832, which gave a freer license to doctors, teachers of anatomy, and medical students to dissect donated bodies. 
and they could also go after Popper's bodies freely. Then the real hunt for Popper's bodies began, followed by a quickly fading search for donated bodies. These bodies could come from, and did come from, a growing number of lunatic asylums, as well as prisons, hospitals, and mortuaries. But donations petered out when these institutions realized they could make more money under the table. At the same time, people with financial means were doing all they could to protect their deceased family members, finding safe burial locations as cemeteries began to sprout up apart from churches, leaving the poor in potter's fields as victims for doctors in need of parts. In America, cemeteries were dividing those recently dead with relatives from those recently dead without and selling freshly buried unclaimed corpses to doctors. And potter's yards containing blacks and Indians were especially hard hit, pretty much considered free parts kitchens for aspiring medical students and doctors. The poor in England were allowed to get a free burial if they agreed to donate their bodies and their next of kin to medical research. Grave robbing was so bad in the early 1900s that people had to guard the bodies of their loved ones until burial and then stand guard around the graves of their loved ones afterwards. Those who could bought iron caskets and put locks on them or erected iron bars called mort safes around the grave. And no doubt when the lunatic asylums and prisons found there was a thriving black market for cadavers, donations slowed to a minimum, and mysterious deaths on the streets and in asylums ramped up. When Mary Shelley penned her classic book Frankenstein in 1818, the practice of grave robbing was putting fear into the hearts of many, especially the poor. And the story of Dr. Victor Frankenstein and his acquisition of fresh body parts from local graves, which he used to create a living creature, became an international bestseller. Her story and the incredible story of Frankenstein Castle is coming up soon at 1001 Heroes as we celebrate Spooktober in the build-up to the most eerie of holidays, All Hallows' Eve. All this just mentioned to present the culture that existed in England in 1888 when the Ripper began his 10-week swath through Whitechapel. It was a culture in which the poor lived in fear, where human wolves preyed upon the helpless, where cadavers and body parts were as common as used cars are today, and where a large number of men, both sane and insane, had received training in anatomical dissection. Getting back to the Ripper, there were some physicians performing autopsies on the Ripper victims who thought the jagged wounds too crude to be professional. Keep in mind that these physicians were people who used scalpels under some kind of light and were not pressed by time. Nevertheless, the alibis of local butchers and slaughterers were investigated heavily at first, with the result that they were mostly eliminated from the list of suspects early. Over 2,000 people were interviewed, upwards of 300 people were investigated, and 80 people were detained. The difficulty was back then, as it is today, that without something solid, they could only hold them for 24 hours. So the possibility is very strong that some very good suspects were able to slip through their fingers. Scotland Yard built some very large dossiers on some of these suspects, the contents of which were either lost, destroyed by fire, or to this day have never been released. During the course of their investigations of the murders, police regard several men as strong subjects, and although they might have been picked up and held, none were ever charged for murder. 
The most recent Ripper story you've probably heard is that of Herman Webster Mudgett, a.k.a. H.H. Holmes, who is called the American Ripper. There's a multi-part episode out there now on the History Channel covering the story of this guy, who is best known for building a murder castle near the 1893 Chicago Exposition, inside of which he tortured, killed, and incinerated dozens of innocent women who checked into the hotel, making thousands off the sale of their bodies. Jeff Mudgett, a lawyer and former commander in the U.S. Naval Reserve, claims that his great-great-grandfather, H.H. Holmes, was, in addition to being the deadly proprietor of Murder Castle, Jack the Ripper. Mudgett bases his assertions on the writings in two diaries he inherited from Holmes, which detail Holmes' participation in the murder and mutilation of numerous prostitutes in London. These were not mentioned in the TED Talk, which is available online, during which he makes the case that Mudgett's age, height, and appearance, and surgical skills match many of the Ripper witness profiles closely. We have a special author interview coming up in a week or so with Mr. Mudgett, so make sure you stay with us for that. The well-known murderous stories of Holmes and Jack the Ripper are detailed in Mudgett's book, Bloodstains, and can be seen in history's new eight-part series, American Ripper, which premiered recently. All I can say is look for our special Ripper author interviews episode if you want to get the scoop on the stories. Next up, in one recent news release dated August 6th, 2017, entitled, Has the True Identity of Jack the Ripper Been Revealed? Victorian Diary Proven Genuine Contains Huge Clue by Martin Evans, crime correspondent for the UK Telegraph. The article claims that the true identity of Jack the Ripper may well have been solved after researchers claimed they had proved the authenticity of a much-disputed diary written by Liverpool merchant James Maybrick, who claimed to be none other than Jack the Ripper. In this 9,000-word memoir, Maybrick confessed to the brutal murder of five women in Whitechapel and one in Manchester. Soon after the original book by Robert Smith hit the shelves in the 1990s, Ripper experts, who subjected it to a very careful analysis, began to question its authenticity. As the story originally went, a man named Mike Barrett obtained the book through a family friend named Tony Devereaux, who died shortly after selling it to Barrett, and Barrett never knew where the book had come from. As the story developed, however, we find that the diary was apparently discovered by electricians working on the estate which was formerly owned by Maybrick, and on the same day of that discovery of the diary beneath the floorboards of Maybrick's old room in Battlecrease in the Merseyside suburb of Eggberth, an enterprising Mike Barrett dialed up a literary agent and said these magic words, I've got Jack Ripper's diary. Would you be interested in seeing it? Problems mounted, not the least of which was Barrett later signing two official affidavits in 1995 stating that it was all a hoax explaining how he dictated it to his wife, then later recanting the confessions, probably at the bequest of his attorney, who might have envisioned a potential gold mine, who said the affidavits were lies and the diary was indeed genuine. At some point, the electricians who supposedly found the diary said they knew nothing about it, all three giving different versions of how they knew nothing, including Robert Lyons, who frequented the same public house as Barrett. Enter a film producer named Bruce Robinson, 
who took up the flag for the diary, investing much time and money in research and the making of the film With Nail and I, which purports to tell the story. Robinson's new evidence, according to the UK Telegraph article, states, as just recounted, that the diary was found in the former home of Maybrick. The paths here seem to be crossing over each other in the mad scramble to legitimize Maybrick's memoir. It is still possible that Maybrick could have written it, or it could be, as described by critics, a very sophisticated forgery, if it is one. Even if he wrote it, it doesn't mean Maybrick was Jack the Ripper. The diary was signed, Jack the Ripper, the last lines being, I give my name that all know of me, so history do tell what love can do to a gentleman born. Signed, Jack the Ripper. All right, let's get to the facts. Who was James Maybrick? Maybrick was a Liverpool cotton merchant who traveled often between England and the U.S. on business. After his death in March of 1889, not long after the murder of Mary Jane Kelly, his wife, Florence Maybrick, was convicted of his murder by poisoning in a sensational trial. The egg birth poisoning case was widely reported in the press on both sides of the Atlantic. More than a century after his death, Maybrick was accused of being the notorious serial killer, Jack the Ripper, but forensic tests were inconclusive. A serial killer who became known as the Servant Girl Annihilator, that term coined by O. Henry in a famous short story, preyed upon the city of Austin, Texas during 1884 and 1885, and there have also been attempts to link Maybrick to those murders. Maybrick had contracted malaria while in Norfolk, Virginia, and was treated with arsenic, to which he became addicted. His wife must have just upped the doses to get him to the gate faster. As his story goes, his arsenic addiction made him delusional, and anger over his wife's infidelity caused him to become a monster. In an excellent analysis titled Revisiting the Maybrick Diary, written by William Beadle, Beadle points out dozens of major flaws in the diary, but we'll name just five big ones here. One, he claims he butchered a prostitute in Manchester, but no records of that murder exist. Two, his wife's affair with the man he called the Whoremaster, the affair that the diarist says drove him to madness, as researchers found, didn't begin until after the last Ripper killing. The diarist says that when he discovered the affair, he planned his revenge on the horrors of Whitechapel while sitting in a tavern called Post House, which didn't exist until 1961 in that name. He claimed that he rented an apartment on Middlesex Street in Whitechapel as a base for his murders. Yet when the real killer left the scene of the Eddowes murder, he left a part of her apron on Goldston Street, which would have been in a completely opposite direction from Middlesex Street. And five, his details of the Eddowes and Kelly murders were contrary to what research has revealed since the late 1990s, since previously unopened coroner reports were brought to light. Ouch! Add these facts to the fact that Maybrick had no surgical experience, had children at home at that time, a very, very rare situation for a serial killer, with no reason to collect body parts unless they were trophies. And you have a diary, written by him or not, that in a number of people's opinions, doesn't hold up to the light of reason or fact. The diary's a big theory out there, so we had to spend some time with it. Another big two theories both involve DNA discoveries that supposedly link the Ripper to mitochondrial evidence. One involves a suspect named Aaron Kaminsky, a Polish Jew living in Whitechapel, 
who was 23 at the time of the murders and is actually high up on the suspect list during the time of the murders and beyond. In a September 2014 article for Smithsonian.com titled, Case Solved on Jack the Ripper? Not so fast. Research writer Rachel Neuer outlines the story brought forward by author and self-proclaimed armchair detective Russell Edwards in his book, Naming Jack the Ripper. His evidence relies on DNA samples taken from a 126-year-old shawl supposedly recovered from the scene of Catherine Edo's murder. As the story goes, one of the policemen on duty that night actually took the murdered woman's shawl home that night and presented it to his wife as a gift. Ladies, the next time your husband brings you a gift that makes you shake your head and wonder, think of that poor constable's wife. What did he say when he handed it to her? Hi, honey. By the way, I found this pretty shawl at a murder scene and thought it might look good on you. <laughs> As you might expect, his wife stuck it in a box and it was passed down to the family until someone tiring of witnessing ghosts screaming in the attic decided to get rid of it and it went up for auction. Author Edwards teamed up with Yari Luhalainen, a molecular biologist at Liverpool John Moores University, the UK Independent explains, to analyze the shawl for DNA traces. They collected genetic material from both Kosminski's and Edo's living relatives. DNA from semen and blood recovered from the shawl linked both killer and victim to the crime, Edwards announced. Many people find it doubtful that the Ripper had time to leave any semen or his own blood on that shawl, but hey, who knows? Skeptics abound. First, they say, the shawl has been openly handled by loads of people and been touched, breathed upon, spat upon, Richard Cobb, who organizes Jack the Ripper conventions, told one reporter. This means that the genetic material could be contaminated. The Independent also points out that most labs working on ancient DNA do so with blind samples. Researchers don't know which samples are which to prevent their biases from affecting results. Labs also go to great lengths to ensure those samples are not contaminated. None of this, the Independent writes, as far as we know, has been done in this case. Lou Helenin's work hasn't been published in a peer-reviewed journal either. If he does decide to publish the study, more can be said about the thoroughness of that analysis. And if you dig online, you can find it. Kosminski, who died in an insane asylum, has long been up on top of the suspect list, so let's take a look at him. He was working as a barber in Whitechapel during the time of the Ripper murders, and he was institutionalized in a lunatic asylum from 1891 to his death in 1894. However, he may have worked only sporadically. It was reported that he had not attempted any kind of work for years by 1891. He possibly relied on his sister's families for financial support and may even have lived with them. Two years after the last of the canonical five murders, on July 12, 1890, Kosminski was placed in Mile End Old Town Workhouse because of his insane behavior, with his brother Wolf certifying his entry, and was released three days later. On February 4, 1891, he was returned to the workhouse, possibly by the police, and on the 7th of February, he was transferred to Colney Hatch lunatic asylum. A witness to the certification of his entry, recorded as Jacob Cohen, gave some basic background information and stated that Kaminsky had threatened his sister with a knife. It is unclear whether this meant Kosminski's sister or Cohen's sister. 
Kosminski remained at the Colney Hatch Lunatic Asylum for the next three years until he was admitted on April 19, 1894, to Leavesden Asylum. Case notes indicate that Kosminski had been ill since at least 1885. His insanity took the form of auditory hallucinations, a paranoid fear of being fed by other people that drove him to pick up and eat food dropped as litter, and a refusal to wash or bathe. An 1894 memorandum written by Sir Melville McNaughton, the guy who originated the term the Canonical Five, and who was the Assistant Chief Constable of the London Metropolitan Police, names one of the suspects as a Polish Jew called Kosminski. McNaughton's memo was discovered in the private papers of his daughter, Lady Aberconway, by television journalist Dan Farson in 1959, and an abridged version from the archives of the Metropolitan Police was released to the public in the 1970s. McNaughton stated that there were strong reasons for suspecting Kosminski because he had a great hatred of women and strong homicidal tendencies. In 1910, Assistant Commissioner Sir Robert Anderson claimed in his memoirs, The Lighter Side of My Official Life, that the Ripper was a low-class Polish Jew. Chief Inspector Donald Swanson, who led the Ripper investigation, named the man as Kosminski in notes handwritten in the margin of his presentation copy of Anderson's memoirs. He added that Kosminski had been watched at his brother's home in Whitechapel by the police, that he was taken with his hands tied behind his back to the workhouse and then to Colney Hatch Asylum, and that he died shortly after, whereas Aaron Kosminski did not actually die until 1919. The copy of Anderson's memoirs containing the handwritten notes by Swanson was donated by his descendants to Scotland Yard's Crime Museum in 2006. In 1987, Ripper author Martin Fido searched asylum records for any inmates called Kosminski and found one, Aaron Kosminski. At the time of the murders, Aaron apparently lived either on Providence Street or Greenfield Street, both of which addresses are close to the sites of the murders. The addresses given in the asylum records are in Mile End Old Town, just on the edge of Whitechapel. The description of Aaron's symptoms in the case indicates that he had paranoid schizophrenia, and known people with schizophrenia include serial killers such as Peter Sutcliffe. Anderson claimed that the Ripper had been identified by the only person who had ever had a good view of the murderer, but that no prosecution was possible because both the witness and the culprit were Jews, and Jews were not willing, according to him, to offer testimony against fellow Jews. Swanson's notes state that Kosminski was identified at the Seaside Home, which was the police convalescent home in Brighton. There was one police officer who got a good look at the Ripper, Constable William Smith, who described the suspect then as short and stout, which Kaminsky was anything but. Some authors expressed skepticism that this identification ever happened, while others use it as evidence for their theories. For example, Donald Rumbelow thought the story unlikely, but fellow Ripper authors Martin Fido and Paul Begg thought there was another witness, perhaps Israel Schwartz, Joseph Lewende, or a policeman. In his memorandum, however, McNaughton stated that no one ever saw the Whitechapel murderer, which directly contradicts Anderson's and Swanson's recollection. There is no record of Aaron Kaminsky in any surviving official police documents except McNaughton's memo. Do you remember Hiram Levy, one of the three men coming out of a club the night Eddowes was murdered from our first episode? When he was questioned about seeing Eddowes and the suspect, he said, 
Police ought to watch this court. That was unusual. Did he recognize the suspect? Levy, who for reasons not known, became distressed by the couple. This has led to speculation that he recognized and knew the man seen with Eddowes, and that it was he who was Anderson's witness. Levy was called to the inquest, but was unable to supply a description, though the press remained suspicious as to the extent of what Levy actually saw or knew. It was the same Joseph Hiram Levy who supported the naturalization application of Martin Kosminski. Though despite the scarcity of the name, no connection has ever been established between Martin Kosminski and Ripper suspect Aaron Kosminski. So all this is supposition. If Levy had spotted a man he knew with Eddowes in the minutes before her death, he would have been very upset indeed. But maybe he wasn't going to lower the boom on him. Anyway, that's the theory. Was it Kosminski? Your guess is as good as mine. If Tess proved DNA on Edo's shawl, it only means she might have been with him, not that he murdered her. He was only 23 at the time of the murders, when almost every witness said, age 28 to 30, or 40 plus. He was also Jewish, and I believe the killer left too many signs trying to implicate Jews. He threatened his sister with a knife once, He had no medical training. He had just moved to Whitechapel and lived with family. No time to get to know the area's streets and back alleys. Nah. Maybe some knife attacks. Maybe a copycat murder. But I doubt it. Let's move on. And when you hear that female DNA was found on the back of the stamps affixed to the Dear Boss letter and postcard. One of the many videos I viewed in preparation for this story illustrated that one would go to the postal clerk in the smaller districts like Whitechapel with a letter or card, and the person behind the desk would lick and apply the stamp. Probably just an innocent woman postal clerk causing all this ruckus 137 years later. Then there was Frederick Bailey Deeming. Deeming was 46 at the time of the Whitechapel murders. He murdered his first wife and four children in Rainhill, near St. Helens, Lancashire, in 1891. His crimes went undiscovered, and later that year he emigrated to Australia with his second wife, whom he then also murdered. Her body was found buried under their house, and the subsequent investigation led to the discovery of the other bodies back in England. He was arrested, sent to trial, and found guilty. He wrote in a book and later boasted in jail that he was Jack the Ripper. But like others before him, he was either in prison or in South Africa at the time of the Ripper murders. According to Robert Knapper, a former Scotland Yard detective, the British police did not consider him a suspect because of his two possible alibis. But Knapper believed Deeming was not in jail at the time, and there is some evidence that he was back in England. Knapper's video is out there, and is pretty convincing. It's called Frederick Deeming, the Australian Jack the Ripper. Deeming's method of murder was strangulation and blunt force, and he was aged 46 at the time of the Whitehall murders. He was a cold-blooded killer, but had no surgical experience and no motive, as the only people he'd killed before were family. Carl Figenbaum, another suspect, was a merchant seaman arrested in 1894 in New York City, for cutting the throat of Mrs. Juliana Hoffman. After his execution, his lawyer, William Sanford Lawton, claimed that Fiegenbaum had admitted to having a hatred of women 
and the desire to kill and mutilate them. Lawton further stated that he believed Fiegenbaum was Jack the Ripper. Though covered by the press at the time, the idea was not pursued for more than a century. Using Lawton's accusation as a base, author Trevor Marriott, a former British murder squad detective, argued that Fiegenbaum was responsible for the Ripper murders, as well as other murders in the United States and Germany between 1891 and 1894. According to Wolf van der Linden, some of the murders listed by Marriott did not actually occur. The newspapers often embellished or created Ripper-like stories to sell copy. Lawton's accusations were disputed by a partner in his legal firm, Hugh O. Pentecost, and there's no proof that Fiegenbaum was in Whitechapel at the time of the murders. Xanthi Mallet, a Scottish forensic anthropologist and criminologist who investigated the case in 2011, wrote, There is considerable doubt that all of the Jack the Ripper murders were committed by the same person. She concludes that it is possible Fiegenbaum committed one of the murders, but not all. Again, no surgical experience for the canonical five. But he was a throat cutter and must be kept on the list for some of the Whitechapel murders. And there's a new book out there by Randy Williams titled Sherlock Holmes and the Autumn of Terror, which posits the theory that a group of three men led by Louis Demschultz, and if his name sounds familiar to you, he was the man who discovered Stride's body as he returned from work at 1 a.m. in the morning and lived upstairs in the building that housed the Jewish Men's Socialist Club. According to Williams' theory, and he has pulled in three well-known crime solvers to give his idea merit, Demschultz was sent to London to create anarchy and unrest, which he was provably busy doing in 1888 and 89, and he used a 17-year-old Isaac Kozabrodsky for the bloody work and a 41-year-old Samuel Friedman to manage Kozabrodsky's bloodshed. According to Williams, these three men were described by the first Whitechapel victim, a victim of an earlier gang of three, who was attacked and lived long enough to describe her assailants. A lot of people are looking at Joseph Barnett, who was a former fish porter and victim Mary Kelly's lover from April 8, 1887 to October 30, 1888, when they quarreled and separated after he lost his job and she returned to prostitution to make a living. Inspector Aberline questioned him for four hours after Kelly's murder, and his clothes were examined for bloodstains, but he was then released without charge. A century after the murders, author Bruce Paley proposed him as a suspect as Kelly's scorned or jealous lover and suggested that he'd committed the other murders to scare Kelly off the streets and out of prostitution. Other authors suggest that he killed Kelly only and mutilated the body to make it look like a Ripper murder. But Aberline's investigation appears to have exonerated him. Other acquaintances of Kelly's put forward as her murderer include her landlord, John McCarthy, and her former boyfriend, Joseph Fleming. We think Barnett's a possible for Kelly's murder, as one story out there says he had one of only two keys to her apartment. The apartment manager, who was proven innocent, had the other, and she was found inside her locked apartment. Keep in mind, in those days, they had to lock themselves in and out with the old-style skeleton keys. By now, your head is spinning with possibilities, or non-possibilities, and if the next story posited the seven dwarfs as ripper suspects, you would probably be reaching for a stiff drink. But this one's even better. The next story takes the cake for the most ingenious twist on the Jack the Ripper mystery. 
and it involves British royalty and a Masonic cover-up of magnificent proportions using a secret assassin group. The theory has a few names that mostly takes the name The Final Solution from a Stephen Knight book written in 1976 by the same name. Knight presented an elaborate conspiracy theory involving the British royal family, Freemasonry, and the painter, Walter Sickert. He concluded that the victims were murdered to cover up a secret marriage between the second in line to the throne, Prince Albert Victor, Duke of Clarence and Avondale, and Annie Elizabeth Crook, a working-class girl. And in 1973, the BBC launched a television series, Jack the Ripper, which investigated the Whitechapel murders. The series mixed documentary and drama. It featured real evidence that was hosted by fictional detectives Barlow and Watt. The sixth and final program there included a testimony by Joseph Gorman, who called himself Joseph Sickert, and claimed to be the illegitimate son of noted painter Walter Sickert. Gorman claimed that Sickert had told him a story that implicated not only the royal family, but also a host of other famous people in the murders. According to Gorman, Gull, the royal family physician, committed the murders with the help of accomplices. Stowell had mentioned rumors implicating Gull in his article, but had dismissed them as unfair and false. Gorman said that his Catholic grandmother had secretly married Albert Victor, and that his mother, as the illegitimate daughter of Albert Victor, was the rightful heir to the throne. He claimed that the Ripper murders were staged as part of a conspiracy to hush up any potential scandal by murdering anyone who knew of the birth. Just for fun, let's pour some cold water on all this. Annie Crook was a real person and did have a daughter, Alice, born April 18, 1885, at St. Marleybone Workhouse, and Joseph Gorman was Alice's son. However, there's no evidence in support of Gorman's claim that his father was Walter Sickert. Gorman was one of the five children born within the marriage of Alice Margaret Crook and William Gorman. Furthermore, according to Trevor Marriott, an expert on the Jack the Ripper case, Alice must have been conceived between July 18th and August 11, 1884. Albert Victor was in Heidelberg from June through August of 1884. Hence, he was not in London at the time of Alice's conception and could not have been her father. The whole story looks like one giant fantasy. One of our top three suspects, James Kelly, is a strong possibility and was 28 years old at the time of the murders. He was first identified as a suspect in Terence Sharkey's Jack the Ripper, 100 Years of Investigation, written in 1987, and documented in Prisoner 1167, The Madman Who Was Jack the Ripper, by Jim Tully in 1997. James Kelly was born in 1860 in Preston, Lancashire, the illegitimate son of a 15-year-old Sarah Kelly, who left him in the care of her mother, Teresa, never to see him again. She later inherited a large sum of money which he left in a trust fund for James, which he could claim at the age of 25. At the age of 15, James is told all this by his grandmother, whom he thought was his mother. He pursued his education, completed it, and moved to London in 1878 to start a new life in the furniture business, applying to the holders of his trust fund for a loan to get started, which he got. The following year, he took residence with fellow upholsterer Walter Lamb, together with Lamb and his friend John Merritt, the formerly devout Catholic Kelly, learned the evils of drinking and whoring, picking up a venereal disease in the process. His drinking became heavier, 
and he started spending much of his nights in Spitalfields and Whitechapel. By December of that year, he met Sarah Brighter and fell in love with her, at that time cleaning up his life and impressing her parents, then moving into their house at 21 Cottage Lane, but having to share a separate room with another man who was lodging there. According to the story, he was becoming intimate with Sarah, but they were experiencing problems, and she admitted to him that she was molested by an uncle and that that might be a possible reason they were having problems. By now, James is starting to suffer serious mood swings and bouts of depression, brought on most likely by the advancing syphilis, which he refuses to have treated by a doctor, apparently becoming very paranoid about doctors. On June 4, 1883, Kelly married Sarah at St. Luke's Parish, Old Street, Spitalfields, and landed a new upholstery job the same day at Marshall's Yard, set at the time to be a two-mile walk from Cottage Lane. Kelly again asked his fund trustees for money to set up house, and they gave it to him. On June 17, 1888, while cleaning the room that Kelly shared with another man down the hall, Mrs. Brighter finds a syringe and the drugs Kelly is using to treat himself, and she and Sarah confronted Kelly, who flew into a rage and accused Sarah of being a prostitute and infecting him, then accused them both of tricking him into marriage for his money. The following day, Sarah's birthday, Kelly, filled with remorse about the previous day's fight, waited for Sarah to come home. But she was late, and when she finally arrived, he went into a rage, threatening her with a carving knife. She told him she was late because she went to pick up quinine for him, and at that point he collapsed, crying. On Tuesday of June 21st, he was again suffering from violent mood swings. They fought again, and he plunged his clasp knife into her neck then started digging into her neck with it, like a crazy man. Mrs. Brighter ran for help. Kelly was arrested, and Sarah died a week later, on June 24th. Kelly was tried for murder at Old Bailey and sentenced to hang. At the last minute, a petition signed by Mr. and Mrs. Brighter, asking for him to be declared insane, reached the judge, and Kelly was assigned to Broadmoor Lunatic Asylum. On January 3rd, 1888, Kelly having fashioned his own key, unlocked his cell door, and escaped over the wall of Broadmoor, a free but mentally destroyed young man with a definite hatred for whores who he blamed created his monster. It is noted that his old friend, John Merritt, is seen near Broadmoor the day of Kelly's escape, and one story has it that Merritt had brought a five-pound note with which he had bribed a warden or guard. He may have also brought a false identity for Kelly, the assumption here is that Kelly was probably sheltered by Merritt in the Whitechapel area, where soon after his escape, a series of knifings of prostitutes began to take place in addition to the Ripper murders, continuing through November of 1888. In his confession years later, which did not admit to any crimes, Kelly omitted the time between January of 1988 and November of that same year, after the Kelly murder, at which time he walked from London's East End to Dover, whereupon he booked passage on a cross-channel steamer to Dieppe. By then he was 28, and it was said he had borrowed the money from friends, meaning he must not have been able to access his trust fund while in Broadmoor, and after escaping, was not ready to turn himself in in order to do so. It is important to mention that in February of 1888, right after Kelly's escape from Broadmoor, Inspector Monroe, head of the Metropolitan Police CID, picked up his case. The day after the Kelly murder, and on the 10th of November, 
Police raided his former in-law's home at 21 Cottage Lane, looking for him. On the 12th of November, someone with the initials CET entered in Kelly's police file that the detectives working on the Whitechapel murders should look closer into Kelly's file. In 1927, almost 40 years after his escape, he had expectedly turned himself in to officials at the Broadmoor Asylum. He died two years later, presumably of natural causes. Retired New York Police Department cold case detective Ed Norris examined the Jack the Ripper case for a Discovery Channel program called Jack the Ripper in America. Norris was and is a top detective and founded the Cold Case Squad in New York City. In the documentary, Norris claims that James Kelly was Jack the Ripper, beginning his search with the murder of Carrie Brown, a prostitute in New York City's East End who was brutally murdered in the same manner as the Jack the Ripper victims in London in 1891, three years after the last canonical Ripper victim. Brown had been strangled in a room, throat cut, abdomen opened, and entrails pulled out. The only thing unusual was what appeared to be an X carved into her back. Norris did a lot of digging, his best find coming from Broadmoor Asylum, where he discovered Kelly's written statement pertaining to his whereabouts for the past 40 years after he had checked himself back in. Kelly did not confess to any of the murders, but he did give up some key facts about his background, one important one being that he was skilled at furniture and upholstery repair, a job requiring the constant use of knives for cutting and tearing. Kelly also wrote that during those 40 years he moved often from city to city and was at what he called constant war with society, also describing prostitutes as skanks deserving whatever came to them. In his confession, he says he was in London in 1888, the timing of which matches the Ripper and Whitehall murders. He also admitted to being in New York City and wrote that he sailed on the Zandam from Rotterdam to New York City in October of 1890, placing him in New York City just months before the Kerry Brown killing. Norris researched and found that Kelly's name was not on the passenger list, but admits that Kelly was an escaped criminal and probably not using his real name. Norris believes he changed it to John Miller. Where Kelly got all his money to travel is unknown, but it is assumed that if he was at war with society, he likely stole it, not long after escaping Broadmoor, then used his part-time furniture jobs to fill in the blanks and familiarize himself with the cities. Norris also researched brutal slayings across America in the 1890s and early 1900s and found newspaper articles in various cities that Kelly admitted he'd been in, with the newspaper articles claiming that the Ripper had committed the murders. He topped off his investigation with an explanation for the two slashes on Kerry Brown's back that appear to form an X, saying that Kelly was trying to tell us it was his 10th murder, the X standing for Roman numeral 10. You have to admit, Kelly is the Whitechapel slasher, if not the Ripper. Looks like a perfect fit. Is anything missing? You tell me. We think he's worth looking at. Kelly is the first, we believe, in a trio of killers that account for the Ripper murders. And the next two suspects coming up in part two accounted for the others. We encourage you to share your theories at facebook.com forward slash 1001 heroes with us. And we thank you for your reviews. Here are a few recent ones. The first one, five stars. Magnifico. Thank you, Mr. Hagedorn, for your podcast, 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This was about the fifth podcast I found. 
Since then, I listened to nothing else. So many favorites, but I especially love the ones on the Rat Pack. Since I found stories for the road and short stories, I am hooked and cannot wait until Sunday. Also, thank you for standing up for God and our country. Keep at it. That one from Boot 076, U.S. And this one, Peshtigo. I enjoyed hearing part one of the Peshtigo. As an educator with a history concentration, I love the primary first-hand accounts. That one from Sly Doggy 98, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, 100% right. My grandfather, who fought in World War I, called the enemy Heinies and Huns. My father, who fought in World War II, called his enemy Nazi Krauts and Japs. And until the day he died, he would tell me how the atomic bomb saved his life. His squadron of B-25s had orders to prepare to the move to the Pacific Theater to fight the Japs. I called mine Kami Rusky and then Ragheads. When you fight an enemy, you have to make them anything but just people, or it would be hard to make war on them. I congratulate you for being a historian and telling the real truth. To hell with the PC police who want to make us the enemy. Our enemies all have bad names for us. It's part of war. And that one from Wolfie Wolf, Apple Podcast, U.S. And Wolf, when I do my history episodes, I'm bringing this story from that time and from those people and from that place in time. And during World War II, Allied servicemen called Japanese military Japs. It's not a slant against the Japanese people today. It was what their military was termed as during that time in history of which I speak. Thanks for your review. And this one, five stars, great old stories. I greatly enjoy the old time stories, even the ones I've heard of before. I like the take on. That from from Twill91, Apple Podcast, U.S. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. And we'll be back soon with part two. And part two is right around the corner.